Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Jag tror att jag skulle kunna förvandla mig till du. Om jag riktigt ansträngde mig. Jag menar inuti mig. Du skulle kunna förvandla dig till mig så här. Fast du skulle förstås alldeles för stor själ. Den skulle tränga ut sig Nu ska du gå till sängs. Annars somnar du här vid bordet. Hej Jenna. Hello Bart. It's a ghost guest episode. Ooh. We've done a few of these. We've uh, had visitors back from the, the past, de- deceased visitors who've come and talked to us about their favorite movies from the 60s. But this is the first time a, a guest, a, a dead guest is talking about your favorite movie from the 60s. They've all been, well, no. I guess uh, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance we uh, we brought in Andrew Saras to talk about that, and that's one of my favorites. But Kale and uh, and Kaufman's picks were not uh, special favorites of mine. But uh, today we've got Susan Sontag here. Hi, Susan. Hey, Susan. And I this is a movie that we've been trying to do since we started. I think this was uh, we we had other we had real life guests that were lined up that we we never got to record with and and so now we're going we're taking it to the grave <laughs> uh and it is in in fact one of my all-time favorite movies the movie is persona and susan sontag wrote a beloved essay about it uh for sight and sound 1967 but you're bearing the lead here which is that you had a band named after persona <laughs> yeah it's it's an important movie it's you know, that's all there is to it. I think everyone wants to hear about a little bit more about this band as far as what you were, you know, was this a punk band? Was this a crazy noise band? Um, Probably resembled The Cure more than anything else. I played bass and keyboards. Were you wearing eyeliner? No. I did have a pair of bell-bottom pants that I wore on stage once or twice. <laughs> Isn't that well? That's kind of square by the '80s or the '90s, whenever you were doing. This that. was the late '90s, yeah. So the Cure was was pretty square at that time too. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, the band had nothing to do with the movie. Ingmar Bergman. Ingmar Bergman, who uh, is your mother's least favorite director and one of <laughs> one of my very favorite directors. I like Bergman a lot. I haven't. I just haven't seen. I mean, I've seen a, a handful of his movies, but I never like sat down and watched all of them the way that I think you have. Though he was definitely one of my first forays in college into like 
they were playing the hour of the wolf uh on campus and i saw that completely blind and i liked it i thought it was interesting and cool and it made me uh rethink all of my preconceived notions about art house, european art house black and white movies i believe that was the film he did immediately after persona and it's that makes sense mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's even more persona than persona is yeah 1966 this movie was made it came right between a couple trilogies that uh, that Bergman made. The first one being uh, his Silence of God trilogy. I don't know how quite how it's referred to. Through Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and The Silence. And then after Persona came uh, Hour of the Wolf, Shame, and The Passion of Anna. And he had moved to Faroe Island where a good chunk of Persona was filmed. I don't know. I could I could go into... Bergman and his life and his loves and and uh, talk about my favorite movies of his and I, I could go on and on but I think we're what's more important is we talk about what Susan Sontag had to say about Persona and she of course was not primarily a film critic although she did write about a lot of films she was more of a culture and media critic I guess in the 60s was when she was uh, sort of hit her peak of popularity. A lot of people were reading her at the time. Her notes on camp came out in like 64. And uh, I want to, I want to get into that at some point, especially if we get to talking about Batman, the movie, but yeah. And she was also a filmmaker herself. She, I've never seen any of her films. I I probably should. None of her movies are seem to be particularly beloved. I think they're difficult which makes sense since she is quite fond of a movie like Persona and uh, a good chunk of her article on it uh, talks about this sort of new cinema that came about in the 60s, more challenging movies that defy a uh, you know linear narrative, have more in their mind than just telling a simple story. And she uh, puts Persona in a, in a timeline of, of these new elliptical narrative movies you know she mostly highlights last year at Marion Bab but she also brings in like Journey to Italy and uh L'Aventura and and before we get too far into Sontag's take can we get an overall plot description of Persona yes um for someone who doesn't know someone who's been too afraid to watch this movie so they're listening to us talk about it so that they can wet their feet a little bit before they jump in. Well, here's the most important thing to know if you're afraid of Persona. It's only 84 minutes long. So even if you can't make any sense out of it whatsoever, it's not that long. So just push through it. But I also don't think it's as opaque as uh, it is sometimes made out to be. There is kind of a story to it. I'll s- skip over the framing device in this film that sort of you know makes you self-aware of, of this film as a film and get right into the meat of it, which is uh, a famous actress, Elizabeth Vogler, played by Liv Ullman, is in the middle of a performance. She's playing Electra, and all of a sudden, she suddenly becomes aware of herself on stage and goes silent, doesn't deliver her lines. You know, afterwards, apologizes, said, said she, you know, she just had this sudden urge to laugh, and then after that, she, you know, just got into bed and 
refused to move or speak. And that's, that's sort of where the movie picks up. She's in the psychiatric hospital. There's nothing physically wrong with her. She has just decided to no longer speak and not care about living her life anymore. Her psychiatrist gives some explanations, and we'll probably get into that within our discussion of the film. But uh, the psychiatrist suggests, you don't want to go home, so go to my vacation house on the seaside and uh, just get away. I'll, I'll send you with a nurse. And the nurse is the other main character, Alma, played by B.B. Anderson. Big chunk of the movie is just the two of them at the seaside living in this house because Elizabeth is not saying anything. It ends up being just uh, Alma talking incessantly and uh, sort of revealing all of her deepest secrets to Elizabeth. They become good friends, sort of intimate. Then a betrayal happens and uh, their dynamic changes and some other things happen that are a little, uh, that are open to interpretation and uh, they're... uh, The end. Yeah. Their identities meld, although it's kind of suggested throughout the film that they're their identities, that they may be two sides of the same person or that they're, you know, it, a lot of the movie is is suggestive of, of various things like that, you know, the duality of human nature and that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, as far as plot goes, that's about all there is to it. Yeah, so so uh, of course uh, people watch this movie and it blew their minds because they had never seen anything like it before. People either dismissed it or called it pretentious or they loved it. it definitely a love-hate kind of a film. I think even to this day in, in, in many ways. And Sontag then wrote this long essay that, of course, breaks down the fact that, like, none of that's right. Yeah, yeah I mean, she starts out by saying that uh, people are kind of sick of Bergman at this point. And... Uh, the thing that she says that offends me most is how she says that actually Persona is Bergman's first masterpiece. And uh, I would say he has quite a number of masterpieces before this film. But if I had to Desert Island pick one of his films, it would probably be this one. But uh, she she said that, yeah, um, the, the problem with a lot of the critics is they tried to break this film down into a straightforward linear narrative, which it is not. It uh, sort of... Yes, yeah, she says specifically that Persona, quote, Persona is constructed according to a form that resists being reduced to a story. And then she goes on to say that the reason is that to that reduction to a story means, in the end, a reduction of Bergman's film to the single dimension of psychology. Not that the psychological dimension isn't there, it is, but a correct understanding of Persona must go beyond the psychological point of view. To jump further down in the article, she says that the material can be treated as a thematic resource from which different, perhaps concurrent narrative structures can be derived as variations. Once this possibility is consciously entertained, it becomes clear that the formal mandates of such construction must differ from those of a quote-unquote story or even a set of parallel stories. The difference will probably appear most striking in the treatment of time. And she talks about how the... You know, a lot of the episodes from this film, they could go in any order at all. It's sort of, you're supposed to sort of treat it as everything happening all at the same time, which is not, you know, that's one way to look at it. There is a progression. The relationship between 
Elizabeth and Alma definitely starts in one place and ends in a very different place by the end. So in that sense, there is a, a linear progression, but at the same time, there really is not a story per se. I mean, she's, she's totally right. I think in, in watching this and, and it always does sort of amaze me when people would rather dismiss a film as being incorrect because it doesn't conform to their idea of how the film was meant to play out based just merely on the fact that other films were this way and this one isn't. It's definitely a big pet peeve of mine. And also the fact that people don't want to really think beyond their expectations in many ways. And I mean, I think everyone's guilty of this. I, I'm guilty of this occasionally, especially when I like see a movie and my first reaction is, this would have been great if they had done this, you know, like, but that's not really how you're meant to be engaging with a film. That's like a good conversation to have with a friend, but it's not really great film criticism. And, you know, to, to then get on board with what is being presented to you and then to live within the structure that's being presented to you is, uh, you know, is, is the more fascinating way to view movies, quite frankly. I mean, she also goes into this idea that, you know, uh, people take a movie like that and they, they believe it's antagonism or, or even contempt for the audience if it's not the way that they expect. But she says, quote, but when the artist declares that he doesn't know any more than the audience knows, what he's saying is that the, all the meaning resides in the work itself. There is no surplus, nothing behind it, quote. Such works seem to lack sense or meaning only to the extent that entrenched critical attitudes have established as a dictum for the narrative arts that meaning resides solely in the surplus of reference outside the work to the real world or to the artist's intention. But this is at best an arbitrary ruling. The meaning of a narration is not the same as a paraphrase of the values associated by an ideal audience with the real life equivalents or sources of the plot elements, nor with the attitudes projected by the artist towards them. There are other kinds of narration besides those based on a story. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of see what she's saying, but don't necessarily agree that that's exactly what's going on with this movie, but in the sense that when you, when you go into a movie, you expect to, that you're seeing just a piece of something that's happening in this world. And there's all sorts of things happening in the world that are, that's affecting this narrative. So every, and everything that happens in the narrative is happening for a reason is there's a why there's an answer to why this is happening somewhere within the work or outside the work there's there are a set of narrative expectations where you are asking questions like what what what's going to happen and then you expect to find out what happens you know and why and a movie like this just defies those expectations it doesn't give you any you know a lot of outside context it as far as you know any kind of story that's going on but i feel like you also need you very much need to look outside of the movie itself to kind of understand what it's trying to do and what it's all about. I think in particular, you need to be aware of Bergman as the author of this film. And that's something that he's really trying to make clear, I think, with the the beginning and end of the film where it's, you know, it starts, the film starts with a, projector lighting up and 
showing you clips from from films and you know you see the the sprockets on the film and you see you know an animation that sort of stops and you know it's it's just really brechty in the in the way that it's trying to make you aware yes this is a movie you're watching i'm not trying to pretend this is reality this is a movie and it's constructed by me and what you're watching is what i have put into this movie i'm not trying to create an illusion that all of this is really happening somewhere this is this is something i have made in the in the middle of the movie there's a there's a sort of breakdown of the film too and it you know sort of cracks apart and and the the image burns and it's i feel like that's there to you know that's bergman again reminding you that oh don't forget you're watching a movie here don't get too involved in the reality of what you see on the screen here this is these are all things that i've placed here and i don't want you to forget that Oh, I have a different. Well, I mean, I so I agree with you. Um, I and I also just want to call out that Sontag uh, ex- also uh, talks about this pretty explicitly, uh, and she's which is funny because we just did the exact thing a second ago that she she says you can't do. But she says, "quote Any account which leaves out or dismisses as incidental the way persona begins and ends hasn't been talking about the film that Bergman made." Far from being extraneous or pretentious, as many reviewers found it, the so-called frame of persona is, it seems to me, only the most explicit statement of a motif of ecstatic self-reflectiveness that runs through the entire film. This element of self-reflectiveness in the construction of persona is anything but an arbitrary concern, one super added to the to the dramatic action. Uh, so yeah, she like fully agrees with you that like you can't talk about this movie and dismiss the beginning and the end and and this idea that Bergman is explicitly telling you this is a movie that is being made by me. But what you were saying just before that um, was reminding me of I always think that there is a point to any movie, and I I, I think that's one of the the beautiful parts about a film. And I got in trouble saying that once with uh, Richard Brody <laughs> on Twitter. I was agreeing with something and I said, I didn't understand the point of this. And he replied to me and he said, you know, there is no, you know, you can't like, it's incorrect to look at a film and expect there be a point. And I was like, I don't, I, I've totally, and I, he, I understood what he was saying in the moment, which was this idea that like, you know, you can't expect that, that like, and this is what Sontag's also saying is that you can't come into a movie and expect that there is just like one answer, you know, that, that someone said, I'm going to make a movie about this. And this is a movie about that. Like, that's not the correct way to watch a movie. To me, when I say point, I think of it as a much broader thing. And I think that there's not there's not a singular point to any movie. And I think sometimes points to movies can be that there is no point. And so I think it's a it's a much, uh, you know, more abstract concept than it maybe came across in a tweet. (laughs) But uh, I think about I think about that a lot because. The, like at first I was like, oh, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I should listen to Richard Brody because he knows what he's talking about. But then I was like, no, I think I'm actually, uh, I, 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 this is my point of view, and and so I'm sticking with it. Um, but I think you know, and and one of the things I really liked about Sontag's essay here about Persona is that she she explicitly says that there isn't one any one linear point to this, but there is, you know, there's multiple themes and and multiple. Uh, ideas that are being thrown out there and and you know you have to follow all of them you can't just pick one and to pick one is to make the film pretentious or to make it 
you know, simplistic and, and, you know, there, there's a much broader, uh, you know, thoughts at, at play here, which is, uh, which I agree on, though I do think there is one big theme and, and I was happy to have rewatched this. The first time that I watched this was a couple of years ago and I loved it. I thought it was really great, but it didn't, um, I think my initial reaction, if I remember, was that I wanted to rewatch it, you know, and, and so finally rewatching it, uh, it definitely made a lot more sense to me. I was a little less flustered by all of the things that he's throwing at you. And, uh, you know, I, I, I found the theme to be a little more coherent for me this time around. What do you think? What do you think the big theme is? And is it something that Sontag talks about? Yeah, well, so Sontag, uh, and I, would, of course, want to hear what you have to say about this, because you've watched this film many, many times and love it. So I'm I'm excited to hear your point of view. But I figured it out. out. I can tell you. Yeah, no, <laughs> I've, I've got the answer. Perfect. Well, you can grade you can grade us, uh, you know, from A to F. So Sontag says that um, this whole film is is. The, the the biggest theme in this film to Sontag is this theme of doubling or duplication, uh, quote, that is present on a psychological level in the transactions between Alma and Elizabeth. The formal doublings are the largest extension on of the theme which furnishes the material for the film. My take on this movie was that the theme was recognition and... I think that to me, recognition is the reason that Elizabeth even goes mute. It's like the it's, you know, it is film. This idea of of being seen and seeing um, that Elizabeth wants to see if she even still exists without her voice, which is the one thing that brought her recognition. I think that it's what breaks Alma when she is, you know being seen and reflected in somebody she looks up to and then overshares and suddenly uh it's it's this tipping point of of being perceived is is really what gets to her hmm. and i think that that's also part of why we get that extra punch of the the film in between it's like again this this moment of of we are seeing someone being seen who's who's seeing you know like themselves being seen kind of a a situation um and then from there i mean like that's such a that's such a broad concept that then you know can trickle down to so many different things it trickles down to film it trickles down to how we treat celebrity it trickles down to um you know romance and uh just living life you know i mean vulnerability um the way that recognition can curdle into codependence, you know, it's all the psychological aspects of it, senses of, of worth and worthiness. And that's really, that to me was, was what really stood out this time around. Hmm. So who's, who, what do you think's <laughs> right? What's the right answer? That is all there, but it's not anything that I've personally put to the forefront of what this movie is all about. So that's, I'm, I'm glad that you have a, a, a very different interpretation that's equally as correct as anything that I might say or anything that that Sontag said. I, Sontag doesn't really she doesn't talk about recognition at all in her essay, does she? No, I don't think so, which I thought was interesting. She get, I, I actually thought that for all of her talk, which I think she's again, I think she's totally correct about. She doesn't seem to lift past the psychological. Mm hmm. Even though she explicitly says that people should. <laughs> right. Well, 
one really important thing that Sontag does not mention at all and is clearly an essential part of this film is theology. Like, I think the only reference she makes to anything that Bergman brings in that has to do with religion is she mentions that in the opening montage of, uh, you know, clips from, you know, bits of bits of film that you're seeing, um, you see uh, a a nail being driven into a hand like the like the crucifixion. But she doesn't elaborate on that at all. But there's there's an important scene on the beach where Alma is reading to Elizabeth from a book and is talking about the silence of God very specifically and is saying that, you know, people are always you're looking for answers. They're, you know, they're the, all the trials that they have in life, all the, you know, looking for meaning and all of this, you know, all of these human urges for to to understand and to, you know, have a have a path for living. It all sort of crystallizes into this, uh, what she says, a hope for otherworldly salvation. And um, our instincts are to appeal to God, but we're we're met with silence. And there's no way that we're not supposed to connect this silence of God that that Alma is talking about here in her book with the silence of of Elizabeth. And I think there's nothing you can do with that than than see Elizabeth as a sort of God in a way, an artist. And, 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 you know, this, this idea that an artist is a God, an artist is a creator, an artist is creating something out of nothing. This, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to explain my ideas very well here. The references in this film to religion definitely didn't pass me unnoticed, though I, I admit that it was on my back burner. But to me, I, this idea of celebrity as God uh, to to love somebody so much that you hate them, to uphold their views and, and their vision of you as higher than, than how you believe in yourself. I mean, like, to me, all of that goes back to recognition, too. I mean, what is judgment and uh, this idea of, of I'm going to follow the righteous path in order to, to you know, then be judged later that I, I did and, and be rewarded for it, to me, falls back into recognition. But I... I want to hear more about how that that doubling of the two of them. I mean, so I agree with Sontag. She goes on in her essay about how people are there's this idea that the two of them turn into each other. And that's like a total misconception of this film. And never is that explicitly stated, even though there is these blurred lines about Alma, you know, seeing herself in Elizabeth. And there is the moment where Elizabeth's, husband you know male suitor comes and and speaks to Alma as if he's speaking to Elizabeth uh and there you know there's some confusion but it's also not clear if if that's even happening or if that's a sort of fantasy or a dream or just like a a concept that we're seeing because it definitely doesn't fit into the linear narrative that's another thing that Sontag says that to try and distinguish between what's quote-unquote real in this movie and what's a "Quote unquote fantasy is is fruitless. That there's yeah. no no real reason to even try to do that. She says that it's you know you could place everything that happens in this movie in somebody's mind. That's all just a, you know all occurring in the landscape of in, inside somebody's head. But you know that you still have to have to interpret the movie. You still have to figure out what it's trying to say and." So there are, you know, there are several 
layers of things that are part of the basic level of, you know, that that's given a certain amount of reality. And there are other things that would be impossible if you're accepting this one level as some version of reality. But to say that there's one level of this that is actually happening is exactly what Bergman doesn't want you to do, that, you know, this is all a construct. So how does that how does that fit into theology? Well, I mean, you you followed up what I said immediately by talking about celebrity and Alma, when she's first given this job to care for Elizabeth, she's thrilled, excited, a little frightened because she does. She worships Elizabeth in a, in a sense that we worship celebrities. You know, we look up to them. We feel humbled by them. The whole beginning of this movie is hers kowtowing to Elizabeth in a, in a lot of ways and, and, you know, humbling herself and saying, oh, I know that you're so beautiful and and I'm so ugly, but in a lot of ways we're similar and just sort of, you know, worship is is a good word for, for how we, we treat celebrities. And it's also, it also turns Elizabeth into a godlike figure. And, um, but I mean, explicitly with the, this, the, the doubling theme, which is there. Well, the doubling is, I don't, I mean, the people who interpret the movie as them sort of exchanging personalities are kind of missing the point because, you know, there is an exchange of power. Elizabeth holds all the power at the beginning of the movie. And at the end, Alma seems to be the one who's, you know, got, who's, who's taken the reins and sort of in, in control. And, uh, and Elizabeth is having to give in to uh, Alma's demands. So there is, you know, in certain ways, there's an exchange of power. You think this is about man re- reclaiming power from God? <laughs> well, in a way, I think it's Bergman saying that he is God. Like oh, he both I is okay. examining his relationship with God. He has, you know, his his search for meaning, asking God for guidance just goes unanswered. That um, So he has to sort of make his own way in life. And as an artist, he is performing the, the the duties of God. He is creating a universe where, you know, he's created these characters. and But at the same time, he has a responsibility to the characters that he's created. He has to give them a reason, a, you know, give them a point, give them a, uh, a goal. And, you know, if the characters in his film are sort of wondering what the point is, then he's not doing the job. He's not, you know, he's being a, a bad god to his characters, I guess. I mean, the real point that I want to make is that there are so many different interpretations and so many ways to, like, see this film and the way that the you know, character interactions sort of morph and change. Like, really, the, the easiest way to, to view this movie, let's say, is to say that, that Elizabeth and Alma are two aspects of the same person. They're not actually two different people. Mm. You know, that Elizabeth is the performer, the artist, the dissembler, the persona, the person who wears the masks. You know, she gets to, on stage, she gets to be whoever she wants to be. And Alma is the real person, is underneath it all, the one who can't dissemble, the one who is compulsively honest but even alma as as sontag points out meaning soul and persona meaning mask 
but those roles do change in the way that it, it's not two two characters becoming each other. It's a sort of realizing that there are aspects to to our personalities that go, go through changes, and they uh, you know at one point we can feel this way, and in another moment we can feel something completely different. But at the same time, you know, it it all just <laughs> it's a very difficult movie to talk about because you have to sort of choose what level you want to discuss right. the movie. So you can say I can take the my my God theory and go through the whole movie and say, okay, well, this and this and this and this is a demonstration of the artist as God. And this and this and this and this is Elizabeth wanting to get in touch with this, you know, this real Alma side of her personality. And this and this and this and this is Alma feeling like she is Elizabeth because she is acting out all these. It, it, she, she states it at a number of points in the film that who she is and who she wants to be are two very different things. And she feels like her life with her, her fiance, you know, her whole life is mapped out for her. They're going to have a child and there's, you know, it's, it's all kind of locked in. And this is sort of this part that she has to play because it's all been decided, but she doesn't feel like that's, that's the real person. Like there's this, you know, something inside of her that makes her act in ways that are not, you know, that don't go along with this role that she's supposed to be playing. So there's there's a lot of back and forth between the two, and I think that's that's how the movie is supposed to be taken, is there are two aspects of the same person. Well, I wonder if part of what makes this movie hard to talk about, because I'm I'm fully on board with your with what you're saying, but I also know what you mean by like it's just it's hard to even know where to start to kind of wrap your mind around it. And I, I liked what Sontag points out, which is that she says, quote, cinema is a natural home for those who don't trust language, a natural index of the weight of suspicion lodged in the contemporary sensibility against the word, quote, which I think actually does fit quite nicely into your God theory <laughs> or your against, man against God theory or man as God theory, because she goes on to say, Quote, what Persona demonstrates is the lack of an appropriate language, a language that's genuinely full. All that's left is an a, is a language of lacunae, you know, which is like of absence, you know, like, like an empty gap. Befitting a narrative strung along a set of lacunae or gaps in the explanation. It is these absences of sense or lacunae of speech which become in Persona more potent than words, while the person who places faith in words is brought down from a relative composure and confidence to hysterical anguish. And I really love, I love this idea that cinema is the natural home of somebody who doesn't trust language. Cause I, that like hits so hard. Like it's totally true because words aren't enough. You need to, you need to be showing something as well. And sometimes the thing you're showing is actively contradicting the words that are be, even being spoken on screen, which is the beauty of, of cinema as an art. You know, it really is merging everything that you love about all other types of art into this one own its own unique thing. But, uh, you know, there is I mean, like it is a movie that is about the absence of something. And it, it's hard to even then try and use words to explain even hers. Like it, it feels, you know, kind of clunky that the quote I just read, but it, it, it <laughs> like she's getting she is getting there like i i fully understand what she's saying and bergman puts that into the 
film in a very pointed way. Like it's actually one of the more pretentious <laughs> moments in the film. Um, well, the very end, and actually to say it is sort of a spoiler, but um, I'm going to say it anyway. When Alma finally gets Elizabeth to talk, she gets the one word she gets her to say is nothing. And so good, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's also showing you the inadequacy of language. Like to say nothing, you're saying something, you know, that nothing is a word. You can't communicate nothing by saying nothing because then there's something there. And I, you know, I absolutely, I, I feel like what Sontag is saying here about, you know, Bergman talking about the, the inadequacy of, of language and the, that cin- cinema is a refuge for people who don't trust language. I, I think that speaks to me, and I'm surprised that you identify with that as much as you do. I mean, I, I love language, but I like it as the playfulness of language and the, the feeble attempts that people make to, to try and communicate with language when it's just so inadequate, where you can't ever really express what you're saying through language. And the most exciting moments in movie watching for me is when you have characters saying one thing and be doing something completely different. It feels so real to me like that. I can connect to that sensation so much. I mean, there are certain authors like Henry James, which uh, Sontag refers to in, in her essay. His novels are very much about people saying things and behaving in a very different way. But there's there's ev- even more authenticity in a film when it's, you know, when it's showing you and not telling you. Because even when James is, you know, getting into the very intricate detail of how, you know, behavior will, you know, defers from, you know, what a person is, is saying, is he's still having to use language to do that. But when you're seeing it in a film, there's an authenticity. and I, But it's also, this is a big part of what Bergman is trying to accomplish in this film. Several key emotional moments in this film that are created when he shows, like, the Buddhist monk um, setting himself on fire, protesting the Vietnam War, or the child in the Warsaw Ghetto, or, you know, the sheep being slaughtered at the beginning of the film. There, There's a reality that can be captured on film that is purely authentic and because it's real it creates an emotion that you know can't be denied and i think that bergman with this movie is trying to create a psychological reality that is as authentic as the documentary footage that he's showing of these horrors you know these these images that cannot help but produce an authentic emotion in you because they're real and at the end of the day that's what this he's trying to do with this movie is create a psychic landscape that resembles reality. But he's also aware that he's an artist creating an artificial world. So, you know, having his character, Elizabeth, turn her back on artifice and realizing all of a sudden that everything she's saying is fake, that it's not real, it's not her. And the only way to be real is to not say or do anything but she finds, and her psychiatrist says at the beginning that this is all just a, a role you're playing too, that you know life has a way of seeping in through the sides and you are going to react. You cannot not be a part of life, a part of reality. Well, you know, so I was going to bring up the psychiatrist 
Though I would also want to say, first off, I have no idea why you think that that wouldn't resonate with me. <laughs> you, I'm definitely visuals over words. I'm, I'm not a fan of flowery writing. But to me, the absence of language ties directly into theology and God. I mean, like, there is no, I mean, the, this idea of having a relationship with God is really somebody speaking to nobody, right? Like, that's it. Somebody who is trying to find a way to connect to somebody who will never, ever reply to them. They they can feel something. They can have an emotional, sensual reaction to what they perceive as or call God, but there's never a, there's never words exchanged. Mm-hmm. Like and and I think that there is something definitely there. But then funny and and you know and that to me is this reflection in this film, which which we have, of course is is being played out on multiple uh, levels. Uh, and and even when you're talking about all the news clips. To me, that also just speaks to the absence of God. It's like, look at these horrendous things. It also speaks to recognition. It speaks to, like, this is a monk setting themselves on fire is done for uh, recognition, you know, of, of calling attention to uh, so multiple things, too. Again, to, to religion, to uh, the current state of, of the world, to themselves, their, their state of despair. But it also is, is again, reflective of this idea of, of God is, where's God? <laughs> like mm-hmm. God has turned their backs on, uh, his back on, uh, you know, the world and, and showing photos of, of people that are about to get murdered or, or were murdered is another point of like, you know, this person has been erased from history and yet we have this photographic proof that they are still here, you know, and, and they're still, we're still thinking about them, whether or not we know anything about them other than this one moment of terror that's been captured. And yet with all of that being continuously reinforced, one of my favorite parts of this movie was that doctor in the beginning. And she has this amazing speech where she talks over it. I mean, like you said, that quote about life oozes in from all sides and you're forced to react. And, you know, she calls out Elizabeth as like, you know, I know what you're doing. And, and she says everything that, you know, essentially does play out. I mean, I think that it, Sontag specifically says, if you're only going off of what the psychiatrist says, you're missing, you're missing the film. And I, I do agree with that. It's not like it's not so simple as merely what she's saying. But I do think that what she's saying applies completely. It's just that it is it's like the human part of it. And it's not the spiritual or the, the philosophical part of this film. Right. Which I, you know, is, is a huge chunk of the pie. <laughs> yeah. Sontag says it's not the key to unlocking the film, but it is a key to unlocking a big chunk of the film. And being able to say, okay, I understand psychologically what's going on in this film. Now let me... With this character, yeah. With this character. And now let me think about everything else that this film is doing. And I think that's why this movie works. I mean, I'm interested in narrative. I mean, I've never I've never hidden that. I, I like film to do things in interesting ways and show me things that I haven't seen before. But when it comes right down to it, I'm a story guy. I like to see a story that's acted out by characters who are making things happen in organic ways. And that's sort of my idea of what a perfect film is. And this movie does not do any of that. And, and yet I still, I find it to be completely satisfying. So part of watching this again recently, I was trying to figure out, well, why, what makes this film so compelling that I can sort of set aside my demands for characters act in what Sontag describes as, you know, going from A to B 
and then from B to C, and if there's narrative justification to a, a D, I'm somebody who does, like, I like a challenge, but I have that expectation from a film, but yet this this movie is something completely other, and I, I place it above so many other films uh, that are far more straightforward. I'm a little bit puzzled as to why this one works so well. I mean, my my guess would just be that it touches upon all the themes that I think interest you at the end of the day. Yeah. And it has the characters that it creates. I mean, really, there are two who may, in fact, be the same person. But they are, they're great characters. They're very, even, you know, Elizabeth, who doesn't say anything or says very little throughout the course of the film, she is has a very, you I think a lot of it has to do with what the psychiatrist says about you know what she's doing and you understand her and you are like without her having to say anything you are definitely following her emotions and her feelings and knowing why she's doing what she's doing and at the same time Alma is an open book and that's sort of her character and you are caring about what she's doing and I think that the characters are are acting they are making things happen that you know feel organic even though it's not leading up to a you know linear story it still feels it sort of satis it feels like it's satisfying those requirements maybe and that's why it's you know the the 84 minutes it just passes in in an instant for me it's a you know it's such an easy movie to watch and it shouldn't be yeah i don't know i mean like i i totally feel you i this is there was nothing hard about watching this movie as as I think as difficult as this movie is there was nothing that was it was it's still fun it's a fun difficult <laughs> yeah I, I mean the other thing I the stuff that really wows me in this movie though is I, I think it's the honesty and maybe this is also part of it I mean her story when she's talking about her her beach story is mesmerizing and I was I was so aware, especially this time around, of how nothing is happening on screen, and we're just listening to somebody tell a story, and yet you can you can see the story, uh, and you don't need to see it. I, and I, I don't think it would have been nearly as powerful if we had actually if it had been shown. It would be powerful in a much different way. Yeah, and to sort of listen to her just talking about it. I mean, you you feel all of her em- embarrassment, like excitement, fear. You know, you get everything. You're you're feeling both sides of it. You're feeling uh, what Elizabeth is is you know shocked to to hear, and yet is is yet still thinking about mining this for some sort of humanity that she can bring up later. And then you get what Alma, everything that she feels like she's sharing, like some hidden part of herself that nobody's ever seen and this is some key to herself that maybe elizabeth can use to open up and and you know can there's she's looking for something she's searching by by telling the story of this that you know she has so many mixed emotions about clearly uh and, and a lot of negative emotions about mostly and and yet here she is just blurting this out and it's a it's confessional you know it's it's it is almost a religious experience and and when elizabeth doesn't react in the way that she wants her to react and yet doesn't know how she's going to react she's completely destroyed by it yeah well i mean the real division between the two comes when when alma finds out that elizabeth has is sharing these stories that she's telling her confessional stories with 
the doctor and she feels betrayed by this. And I think that's... And yet she's betraying her by reading her mail. Right, exactly. But it's also... This is Bergman expressing his own guilt over using, you know, stories from people in his life in his own movies. And, you know, there's just so much metatextual stuff that you can bring into this film. Like, he, it's... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you bringing up that story, which is it's sort of the like key moment in this film. It's sort of what what everyone remembers from Persona if they only remember one thing. And it's, you know, by far the most erotic thing we've seen in any film that we've watched for Cinema 60. We, and we've seen Definitely some, the most explicit. Yeah. And it's you don't see anything. It's all all just words. It's all just B.B. Anderson giving an amazing performance, relaying the story where it's also set up where you're you're wondering, well, is this did this really happen or is this a fantasy of Alma's that she's telling to Elizabeth? Because, you know, she, <laughs> oh, I could go on and on about this movie. But the the lead up to the story that Alma tells about this sexual experience on the beach it comes right after she says that she's always been faithful to Carl Heinrich, her her fiance. And then immediately afterwards, she tells the story of being unfaithful to him. And that lends it a, a confessional air that she's, oh, I lied about never being unfaithful, so I've got to get this off my chest. But there's also this idea that, but in my, in my fantasies, that, you know, the, these are the sorts of things I want to happen. But the way that B.B. Anderson delivers this, this monologue, this story, it feels so real. Like, there's such an attention to detail. You know, she throws in certain details that are not essential to the story at all. The ribbon on my hat was blue. It's very hard to watch her tell the story and not think that this is something that really happened. But clearly somebody has written this story for her to tell. And I don't know, it's it's just <laughs> another one of the ways that this movie blows me away is that it's all a construction and it's all Bergman trying to get across reality in a fictional setting and succeeding maybe better than anyone else ever has and creating a fictional reality on, on film. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it really is this mind blowing scene. I mean, and again, I just, it really was just making me think about like, I, I mean, again, like this idea of acceptance and, and how much of ourselves we want to actually be revealing in order to be accepted. And, and at what point is, is, being honest and and even like I mean an experience that she's had here it I don't even know if that is such a wild experience <laughs> it's certainly I mean it's racy it's it's wild for cinema but is that a wild experience for a person I like I don't know and yet if, if you were to share that story at a party or even with a, a friend if you were to share a story like that in confidence with somebody who you you don't know that well. You know what I mean? It's like it, it, not someone who's going to to turn around and be like, "Oh, I'm so sorry," and that's so great for you. Like someone who who's actually like you know, because she doesn't know Elizabeth at all, right? And I mean, that's also a, the part of the genius of this is that she takes the silence as as acceptance, and and until she doesn't, until suddenly something clicks, and suddenly the silence is evil, and so she's now interpreting. Uh, it's continuously this mirror of herself and her own self-hatred, which, you know, is, is also explicitly called out after a while where she starts to apologize. And so, I mean, all of that in itself is, is its own fascinating aspect and about just the way that we treat people, the way that we treat ourselves and sort of thing. But 
Yeah, it's it's like it's so hard because it, it's hard to talk about any one thing because you get lost on the tangent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> of that's... like it's about this, but it's also about that, which is about the one time that this happened, which then happened. You know, it's like uh, yeah, I, I find myself sort of tongue tied by this movie in a lot of ways, even though watching it. I think if if we were to only pick one scene, we could have talked for an hour. Yeah. I mean, I would love to record five different commentary tracks on the the DVD for this film. You know, <laughs> and play them all at the same time. Yeah, addressing a different <laughs> thing with each track. But one thing we should bring up, um, since we're, we're talking about Sontag's response to this film, uh, is that uh, she denies that there's anything erotic or sensual going on between the two women, which very much goes against the way that a lot of people interpret this film. They, they I agree with her this time around. The yeah. first time I didn't, I agree with her this time around. Yeah. And, you know, especially for, I mean, I guess Sontag was bisexual, but I think she was fairly closeted, definitely in the, in the 60s. I think it was later in life that she sort of talked about her relationships with with women as well as men, but she, yeah, she very, she puts a, a fine point on the fact that there is intimacy between these two women, but it's not sexual. And I, I think that's true. Like there is one moment Sontag actually refers to this moment where Elizabeth comes into Alma's room and there is that that sensual moment that you see in, in stills from this movie all the time where it's like the two of them, Elizabeth is standing behind uh, Alma and it's like they're looking in the mirror, but the camera is the mirror and Elizabeth holds Alma's hair back so that they sort of look identical. And it's the most eroticism you see between the two of them because they're sort of equals at this point and you feel like, oh, maybe there is some kind of sexual desire between them, but it's, it's, it's only in this one scene where that really plays out and it's, probably the easiest scene in the film to interpret as a fantasy, a dream of Alma's. Sontag kind of famously in the essay refuses to describe the, uh, you know, the very specific lighting choices in the scene because they're too complicated to get into in this essay. It's not that difficult to describe. It's it's done in a very hazy, gauzy way where it kind of looks like a dream. And you know, Elizabeth comes in from one lit doorway and, you know, heads out the other. And it's all done in a very dreamlike fashion and, and lit, you know, in this, you know, sort of very non-contrasty it's all sort of grayed out and there there may be a, some desire in in Alma's mind for Elizabeth but it's not played out in you know whatever you could be interpreting as the story of this film it's there's a it's desire it's just not sexual desire you know and and I think that in general there there tends to be a lot of you know people like to to put things into two camps it's either like it's familial or it's romantic and there's like five billion other versions of love (laughs) (laughs) and i just you know so it's like there was nothing that felt erotically charged between the two of them and even you know touching somebody i mean again think about the way that we treat celebrity or the way that people talk about god i mean think about like you know, you love God, you you consume God, If depending on your religion. I mean, like, there is all these things that you can joke about them in, in some sort of erotic or sexual way, but it's not really the, the intent of it. I think that's really more of where 
that intimacy is happening here that it, it really has again comes back to this idea of of celebrity the way that people want to claw off pieces of clothing and hair of celebrities that they love and and like that just this idea that that you want to consume the person that you look up to that is really what this came across as i like there was really nothing that that felt like overtly homosexual (laughs) yeah most of the caresses in this film are elizabeth's very mothering caresses of alma and there's no way to interpret those caresses as as sexual and they're also i mean they're the they're the movements of somebody who has no speech at the moment and is choosing not to speak so how else you know how else do you get across empathy well we've gone over an hour here and i didn't get to defend you against uh richard brody either because i agree that uh that every movie has a point every everything that's in a film every sound every image is there for a reason somebody has chosen to put it there Sometimes they couldn't find a better thing to put there, and that's why it's there, and that's the point. But, yeah, everything, even if you're saying there's no point to it being there, you're creating some kind of you know absurdist effect, and that's the point. So Brody is wrong. And right. <laughs> you, me, and Harry Nielsen. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, the point. <laughs> Got it. Check. <laughs> me and my arrow. Good. I'm going to leave in that long pause. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm with you. I mean, I, to me, that's the beauty of, of movies. And that's why I love coming back to films is that, you know, everything is is purposely there, unlike life. <laughs> yeah. Unlike television, where you're just trying to pad out an episode because you don't have enough material to fill out 45 minutes. A mo- cinema is perfect because you only have a, a limited amount of time to get everything you need to get in there. I do want now one of the things that you said at the end of this movie was that um, it was your comparison to Lynch. And I want you to bring it up and explain it. <laughs> uh, coming soon to back row cinema. Oh, that's right. You're going to write a whole essay. <laughs> just sum it up. Just sum it up. Well, le- I'll, let me let me just tease it by saying the first thing you see in Inland Empire is a uh, is a film projector going on. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> well, I hope that we did we did right by old Sontag here. I really enjoyed reading her essay on Persona, and I really enjoyed rewatching this. And I look forward to watching it again and learning more about this movie. I mean, that's that is, uh, you know, and, and I, maybe that's really why you keep coming back to this is the fact that this is this genuinely is a movie that you can watch over and over again. And it not only there, there's not only little corners and nooks and crannies of things that you can be discovering each and every time, but it also is going to change where, depending on how you are as a viewer are looking at it. And that's not always the case with movies, but there is so much of this film that is reflective of the, the audience watching it and in your state of mind. And no, when you're when you're following a straightforward narrative, there's only so much you can get out of it. Here's the story. Here's what happens. But in a movie like this, endlessly rewatchable because you can always bring you're bringing something new to it and you see new things every time and you have a new interpretation of what's happening. And yeah, more more movies should be like this if they could all be as compelling as this one. Yeah. I'm not sure they can't. <laughs> all you idiots need to be more like Bergman. What's up? You guys can't even make a Bergman film? 
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out Cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's Cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.